Father, uh, we come from all over our country, uh, from different places, and this is your body. We are your people. We acknowledge this is not our church, but your church. And it is a delight to see people uh, fill a room to, to the brim who want to learn and grow. And I pray that this time is not wasted, but precious, encouraging, challenging, equipping. Thanks for the men and women who are volunteering above and beyond with kids in the back, with student ministries, with small groups, uh, training, security detail, AV, live stream, so many hands to make this morning work. Thank you. Reward each of them for their time and commitment and service and willing hearts to do it. Encourage their families in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we are going through the study of the book of Proverbs, and if you're new or newer, if you're joining us for the first time on live stream, uh, the body of wisdom literature is a bit different. And very briefly, because you can go back and watch earlier messages, we spent quite a bit of time talking about how to approach wisdom literature. The first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs are essentially lectures from the father to his son. The wisest man on the planet who asked God to give him wisdom to govern this great people of his asked for that wisdom and God granted it to him. So if you're a genius, how do you communicate to the simple? Well, you do it in truncated ways, in structural ways, in comparison and contrast, in everyday observations. In other words, not to be too trite with putting the cookies on the lower shelf. That doesn't diminish the value of the cookie on the lower shelf. It's just how does a genius explain a concept in a simple fashion? I have a double engineering friend of mine who years ago I asked him to tell me about his job and he said quote Michael you do not have the economy of language for me to explain to you what I do <laughs> that really encouraged my heart deeply <laughs> so if you're a genius you got to learn how to communicate it simply he's not just a genius he's God's man a wise man who was given this information to change people's lives and to follow God faithfully do words hurt or help? If you're watching when Christy was sharing with our kiddos, uh, that's that the Condor motto is true. Do the words hurt or do they help? Rudyard Kipling said, words are, of course, the most powerful drug used by mankind. Churchill said, we are masters of unsaid words, but slaves of those that slip out. Alan Turing, and if you're not familiar with the name, uh, for those of you perhaps under 40, you might not know the name Turing, but ostensibly he is the father of computer science, and even more so ostensibly, he is the father of artificial intelligence. A very conflicted individual, but a brilliant mathematician who understood computer language, and actually in some regards invented it. Um, he writes, he died in 1954 at age 41, and that's a sad, sordid story. But he says, I believe at the end of the century, the use of words and general educated opinion will have altered so much that one will be able to speak of machines thinking without expecting to be contradicted. A machine's going to be able to talk to us, and we're not going to, quote, fact check. We're not going to wonder if what the machine said is right or wrong. 
every time you pull out your device and you say, hey, Siri, or if you're godly, hey, Google, and you ask, see, mine just lit up. It says, how can I help? Uh, how many of you have Alexas in your home? We, we, we will never have one, but you know, if you have one of these, you already have it. Um, there's a thing called routing you can do with Androids that you OS people will never appreciate. Um, but you can go in and you can find out exactly what your phone is doing. This past week I followed some steps and I went in and found out there are some things in Android that I could take out that you can't do in OS that are tracking every keystroke of every program you use. That's why if you search something and there's an ad, and that ad was what you were talking about recently, pops up. It's pretty chilling. Touring was right. Maybe the Gibbs brothers, also known as the Bee Gees, said it a little more excessively. It's only words, and words are all I have to take your heart away. Cindy dared me to sing it, but I couldn't do it. <laughs> and if you had that song stuck in your head all day, you're welcome. Derek Kidner observes in his commentary that three of the seven abominations in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19, are examples of misused words. Look at the text with me on the screen. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Lying tongue, false witness, spreading strife, and you could imply it further, but those for sure are addressing the misuse of words. Now, if you look at the book of Proverbs as a body of literature, it's incalculable to tease out when words aren't in mind. I mean, the whole counsel of wisdom is what we say, what we don't say. So in a way, you can't extrapolate it. Uh, what I'm trying to do in these last few messages on Proverbs, we spent some detail in chapters 1 to 9 explaining how to read the book. Chapters 10 and following are really the lists of Proverbs. 1 to 9 are the lectures, and chapters 10 to 31 are these proverbial statements. Typically, they're going to be parallel and couplet, not always. And again, if you're new, I'll, I'll show one or two of those this morning, albeit briefly, because we've talked about them at length. So you can remember them. So it's an easy hook, so to speak, that you can recall the proverb, because the, this brilliant, wise man of God is trying to communicate to the masses, the people. So words can either help or hurt, and I want to look at this under three frameworks. And again, we're, we're not trying to organize a disorganized literature. I want that to be very clear. We're trying to observe how to aggregate all that Proverbs is saying about a given subject. It's a small differential, but you see what I'm saying? I'm not trying to fix Proverbs, or it should have been organized this way. I'm trying to say, look, we can observe the ways these phrases are used to see what they mean and how they apply. Very simple outline this morning. We're going to look first at the power of words, then the weakness of words, 
and then the best words or the best of words. And I'll repeat that again and again for those of you note takers. The weakness, of, the power of words, the weakness of words, and the best of words. Let's look at the power of words beginning at chapter 13, verse 3. The one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. So, again, just note the parallel real quickly. There's one who guards the mouth, one who opens the mouth, one who preserves life, one who comes to ruin. It's a parallel. It's generally the opposite or an antonym, something a little different that's clear when you see it. And this is the power of the proverb and how easy. Now, they're, they're more robust than the simple parallel couplet, just two of them parallel, but it gives you an idea of what to look for when you're reading through this book. The power of words can be observed in two qualities, the impact it has and the impression it leaves. Think of being hit, the impact, and then what's left behind, the impression that remains. So we're just going to think about those two ways the power of words broadly can be used. Something, you know, what's the phrase we say? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will deeply hurt me. That's what it should be. Uh, the idea never hurt me is a lie. Because what happens? At the, at the playground parlance between young children who are not yet ready for school get into a fight, and he or she hurt my feelings. They said or did something that wounded the child, and then the mothers or parents or parental units get into it. Then you have teenagers, such a delightful time of life. A young person becoming an adult as their brain isn't quite yet formed all the way and you're trying to navigate and steer them while letting them become their own person. Teens triangulate. Teens are critical. Teens are vicious toward one another. And those words will have an impact. They will leave a mark. And so then we become adults, and we're more shrewd, and we're more polished, and we're passive-aggressive, or we're just downright mean. So all through life... We're dealing with the impact, the power of words. Proverbs 12, 18, there is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Again, the contrast. One thrusts and hurts, one can bring healing. Uh, I, I have hurt people with my words more times than I want to acknowledge. Maybe you have as well. Maybe you've been hurt by the power of others' words toward you. Um, a spoken word's like a thrust of a sword, Solomon writes. Uh, but the impact can also bring healing. It can be good. Chapter 12, verse 25, anxiety in the heart of a man weighs down. But a good word makes it glad. My mentor, Floyd Sharp, whom I reference often uh, with the Lord now many years, but this was one of his favorite proverbs. He was a retired psychologist, and he would tell me again and again about his counseling and how people would pay him just to listen. And he learned to ask good uh, questions and to interrupt appropriately and to give them food for thought. 
But he said, Michael, at the end of the day, my job is to try to encourage people. I developed years ago a philosophy of ministry that one of the four points is everyone is under-encouraged. Encouragement goes a long way. But, you know, the person who says the encouraging thing makes all the difference, right? If with someone that you maybe don't know very well or a casual relationship, you may likely dismiss it. If it's someone that you respect or someone that knows you very well and they say something encouraging, you hang on to every word. If your husband or wife says something encouraging to you, you hang on to every word. If your adult son or daughter comes back and says something encouraging to you, you cherish that one if you live so long. We like to have encouragement. It's biblical. A good word makes the heart glad. Uh, I remember certain good words because they had both an impact and they left an impression. Uh, flattery and self-esteem, unfortunately, are the converse, or the opposite of this. Uh, flattery and self-esteem go hand in hand. I recall when Cindy and I were much younger raising kids, a lot of books on your child's self-esteem and building your child's self-esteem. There was always something that hackled me with that. And I read a number of those books, and then I stopped reading them. Because to magnify a person's self-evaluation may not be the best indices. He or she needs encouragement, but they also need a standard, and it's a biblical standard. It's a godly mom and dad standard. It's a godly parenting standard. It's encouraging him in the right way. Flattery becomes an overinflated ego that's insatiable. You can't ever overfeed it. Um, it becomes unsustainable and leads to pride and narcissism and a me-first worldview. Uh, just casually speaking, but uh, a lot of what we're dealing with in our woke culture is because of this. It's all about I, me, my. We try to, we were perfect parents by any measure of any, any scintilla of a measurement, but we try to encourage character, not performance. Character, not appearance. Now, that never meant we didn't say, oh, honey, you look pretty to a little girl. But I much preferred, thanks for being patient with your little sister. Thanks for helping out your mom. Thanks for being kind to that kid at school. Thanks for being a good listener. Thanks for not complaining when we asked you to do a chore. I'd rather build that into a child's mind than a self-esteem or a performance ribbon. We all performed. We all participated. I really don't care. I know that comes as a shock to you. Did you achieve in character? Um, our second daughter, Jessie, who on occasion sings, um, she was the one who always brought home sort of the lost kid or the throwaway person. There was a girl in, in her elementary school that had a congenital heart disease, and she had a blue pallor about her, and uh, it was not a good prognosis. In fact, if memory serves, she did pass away years later, but Jesse brought this little girl home because everybody else made fun of her. And the little girl couldn't ride bikes and play ball like Jesse. Jesse was an athlete, 
And she, if, you know, if it was out the, outside with a ball, she was all in. And this girl couldn't do that. And I could hear the two of them in Jesse's room laughing and giggling. I didn't teach my kid that. But you know what? I encourage her. Thanks for being compassionate to the throwaway people in life. She's always been that way. That, to me, is more important than the fact that she's beautiful. But beauty, of course, is subjective. The world's assessment needs to be set aside as believers. Encourage their compassion, their service, their patience, their initiative. They're willing to help out any overture that they're growing as a believer in Jesus Christ. They're forgiving. They're kind with their siblings. So hold in your mind the power of words. They can make an impact. They can also leave an impression. Words have that power. Chapter 6, verse 14. Who with perversity in his heart continually devises evil, who spreads strife. We move from impact now to leaving an impression. Words leave a mark. The word perversely here needs a little bit of help. In the way it's used in our Old Testament, it can also be translated sin many times, and it's a little bit interchangeable. Um, in Lamentations chapter 4, verse 6, for example, the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the sin of Sodom. The word sin is the same word perverse. Let me read that again. The iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the sin of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment and no hands were turned toward her. What's the author, what's lamentation saying? God telling us that my people are worse than Sodom. And I judge Sodom like that. Um, you probably have heard Christians say things like, you know, if God doesn't judge America soon, he needs to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Such a helpful thing. Um, lamentation says it a little more precisely. The iniquity of my people is greater than Sodom. Translation, implication, application, I'm withholding judgment for now. But there will be a judgment. The sin of Sodom left an impression, and they knew it. They knew the story. They believed the story. And again, wokeness is a fascinating permutation of self-interest. Wokeness is about what I want, what I think, where I get triggered, where I feel unsafe, where I feel, you know, I'm no longer considered. I was reading a Peggy Noonan piece, and she is talking about a book, and she says, he thinks that my truth is greater than the truth. Only like Noonan can write. My truth is greater than the truth. Exactly what we're seeing with the impression of sin and perversity in the way a culture drinks it down. Proverbs 10, 10, and 11, he who winks the eye causes trouble, and a babbling fool will be ruined. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Babel is one of those Hebrew words that worked its way into English. There's only a few of them, actually. We call them loan words. English is replete with loan words. But when it comes to Hebrew, you have gamal, which becomes camel. And you have babel, which becomes babel. 
because it sounds like a babbling bunch of noise and it, there's no way to translate, so we transliterate and bring it into our language. And that's precisely what we're reading, the babbling fool. It wasn't bad enough that we hear babble that this person's a foolish person and they're ruined. But words can leave a good impression. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. When we take groups to Israel, we explain the three kinds of water. There's cisterns, there's still water like ponds or lakes, and there's living water. And when you see those three waters, there's only one you want to drink from, and that's living water. And you've got to be pretty thirsty to drink still water, and you've got to be really thirsty if you're going to drink cistern water. And here we have this fountain of life. The ancient would completely understand what that meant. Well, the words can have power. And in that power, they can leave an impact as well as an impression. Secondly, there are words that are weak or words of weakness. And there are a number of senses. Let's look at these. Now, first of all, they are not sustainable and they, are, they don't substitute for deeds. Words alone mean nothing unless it's attached to action. Proverbs 14, 23, in all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. One commentator said that should be hung in every conference room in the country. In labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Um, I, I don't know about you, but uh, how many of you have spent a lot of your life and career in meetings? Um, aren't they joyful? Don't you wish you could go to meetings? I, wake up, I wish I could go to a long meeting. I wish I could wake up and go to a long meeting that goes to midnight, 1 or 2 o'clock, arguing about something. It's so much fun. It feels like such a good use of God's time. A friend in town who works for a public traded company, he said they've gone to a, a standard corporate policy of 20-minute standing meetings. No donuts, no check-in, no how you doing. You can bring your coffee or your water bottle, but we're going to talk about the two or three things we need to talk about, and we're going to resume on Wednesday and follow up, and you're going to do this, and you're going to do that, and I'm going to do this, and I'll see you then, you're out of there. That sounds like a lot more profitable than mere talk. Secondly, words can alter facts. Um, we live in this fact-checked, obsessed society. I actually read something a while back, and they were being straight and logical. They said, we need to have fact-checkers to check the fact-checkers. I go, where do you stop with that nonsense? I mean, after all, Wikipedia is always right. <laughs> Just check Wiki, and you know the facts, right? Just the facts, ma'am. Facts are stubborn things. Facts can withstand checking but that's the problem. Words can be weak just because someone says it's true or it's a fact. Third, words cannot force a response. Just because you say something, it can't make a person respond. Unless, of course, you're in some type of military authority system where you better obey or something will happen. Proverbs 17.10, a rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. There's not a parent, a teacher, a probation officer, 
a social worker, a counselor who doesn't understand that proverb. If a person is impenetrable in their conscience or in their will or in their bad training or whatever you want to chalk it up to, it doesn't matter how much you beat them over the head, literally or metaphorically. But did you notice the first part of it? A rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding. Words are weak when it comes to an obdurate, impenetrable person, but words of rebuke can be good if a person is willing to accept them. Well, the power of words, they can have impact and they can leave an impression. The weakness of words is obvious. There are no substitutes for deeds, for actions. They can't alter facts and they cannot force a person to respond. But let's look at the sort of the upside of this, the best of words. How do we recognize the best of words? Number one, they will be honest. Honesty is the best policy. Chapter 16, 13, we've looked at before. Righteous lips are the delight of kings, and he who speaks right is loved. This is a two-way street, as I understand the proverb. When the king speaks righteously, we love to hear it. When he hears righteous things, he loves to hear it. Some of you are old enough to remember Richard Milhouse Nixon and the so-called Watergate scandal, which I've often wondered if historians would have looked at current scandals with the same lens of Watergate where we'd be as a country today. But that's just nonsense. I remember it very vividly. I remember watching the TV. We only had three channels in UHF in those days. Watching the hearings with John Dean and Chuck Colson and others during the Watergate scandal. And I'll never forget in college, I had a professor, Sydney and I both had a professor, Dr. Calvin Hines had a photographic memory, scary person, and he worked at the CIA as an analyst for many years and had at least a couple of PhDs. But he had this quip he would often say in his lectures that he voted for Richard Nixon and he would close his eyes and I beg God's forgiveness every night for doing so. And he told the story in very eloquent detail. He said, if Richard Nixon had said I was wrong, I shouldn't have done it, gone to the special counsel, admitted fault, quit blaming people, he'd have finished his presidency, they'd have given him all kinds of accolades, he'd have built his library and forever been remembered as an honest, forthcoming president for not lying. But that doesn't happen. That's called fiction. Doesn't happen in the real world. Righteous lips are a delight to the king. He wants to hear and he wants to speak. Whether the king hears or listens, honesty is the best policy. Does that mean honesty is not is always going to be easy? Nope. And that's why we lie. Because we think if we tell the truth, we're going to be found out. My uh, wife and I don't watch the same things on television. And it's comical in our home. And I tease her endlessly about the Hallmark sort of genre. It's even a crime to call Hallmark a genre, but uh, the Hallmark way of doing things, and uh, she takes me to task, but I say, honey, the, the, the troubled married divorced girl goes to her hometown, and she meets the plumber, who was a high school sweetheart, who she never knew he was in love with her, and he's a good man who never married and has two Labrador retrievers, 
And I mean, I can storyboard this thing on a three by five card in five bullets. And she goes, no, it's more complicated than that. And I go, it's still 90 minutes down the drain. I mean, it's, it, it, the story is the same. Well, sometimes it's different. Oh, that's good to know. And we had this little cordial thing about, I like things that are tense and unresolved and complicated. And you know, watch them five times. And she goes to sleep. Sometimes honesty would make these movies really short. Just tell him you got divorced. Get it over with. Tell her you're in love with her and save an hour of the movie. I mean, goodness gracious. Sometimes when you're a parent, what do you do? You tell your son or daughter, you know, honey, if you tell me the truth, we'll be merciful. But if you persist in lying to me, the consequences will be more complicated. Any parent ever done that besides Cindy and me? If you will just tell me the truth, but they fear. The best words are honest. Secondly, the best words are few. And this point is made with some delicious irony. Proverbs 17, 28. Even a fool, when he, <laughs> when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's considered prudent. You know, the village idiot keeps his mouth shut. We think he's brilliant. Don't open your mouth. In the interest of self-preservation, the less said, the better. Um, every parent, if you've got more than one child, you have one that they say everything that crosses their mind and other children that you have to pry words out of. It's not, not stereotypical or sexist, but sometimes girls tend to say everything that ever crosses their mind, and boys might be a little more reserved when our two girls would come home from school and, give me, and I would foolishly say, tell me about your day, honey, and they would in great detail and in great length. And I would tell Cindy, I said, honey, I truly think it'd be, it would take less time to relive the day than to hear her talk about the day. Uh, as where, you know, one of them, you gotta pull it out of them. You gotta ask them. And if you have loud, boisterous children in your family, all the emotional energy goes to the loud, boisterous child, right? And uh, I would do this thing. Again, I'm not anything far from a perfect parent, but we worked at it. And on Saturdays, I would take one at a time out for breakfast. It was a big deal to go to breakfast with dad, especially when they were real little. And I would say, whatever you want, kiddo. You want chocolate chip pancakes with chocolate syrup and whipped cream and chocolate milk? Go for it. I'll never tell mom. And we'll get a donut on the way home. I mean, I don't care, you know. We'll do whatever you want, because I wanted them to enjoy being with Dad and have fun with Dad and talk to them, ask them questions, pull it out of them. Some it wasn't hard. Some it was very painful. Some was, you know, but it's a process. Why am I going down this road? Because you and I got to teach both sides of the spectrum. Sometimes, honey, you need to restrain your lips. Sometimes... Less is more. In fact, that's a motto of mine for about the past 15 years. Less is more. You don't have to say everything you think. And I'm a preacher for a living, goodness gracious. On their side of it, you ever been in a small group where there's a person that never says a word, and the facilitator, leader, whatever, calls on that person? What happens every time? They're right there, they've not missed a thing, and they give a profound response doesn't mean they're not listening, it's just they're quiet. And they're also looking at people like me who have never been quiet in their life, going, I wish that person would shut up so I could say something edgewise. That's why small groups are such an interesting thing to manage. 
because you want people to share, but you also want people who share too much not to share too much. And you want some people that never say anything to feel part of the group and loved. And we want to hear even a few words. We looked at 13.3, but let's look at it again with this idea of few words. The one who guards his mouth preserves his life. When it opens wide, his lips comes to ruin. It's not necessarily a one-to-one comparison, uh, but I, when I read that proverb, I often think, and of course the video that uh, Paul and Jason put together terrifies me. I, I'm terrified of drowning in the middle of the ocean. That's like a nightmare for me. To, to paddle until I have no more strength and finally have to take a deep breath and fill my lungs with ocean water. I mean, just, that kind of makes me sweat thinking about it. That what would that be like? And I think about this proverb, keep your mouth shut or you'll come to ruin. So the best words are honest, the best words are few. And a proverb I've shared before in the series that plagues me, chapter 10, verse 19, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. Unavoidable. Oh, that I could recall some of the things I've said. I've never regretted not saying something in high emotion. Sure, there's been times I wish I'd have said something better. You know, the definition of repartee? It's what you think of the next morning in the shower. That's grammar humor. It always falls flat, but I like it. There you have it. Uh, There's good repartee, if I could think as quickly as some people think. Um, My friend Janet Parshall, if I could think at, you know, 150 the speed that woman thinks, I would be, you know, that would be lovely, but uh, some of us are a little slower in the way we process things. But if you speak a lot, transgression is likely, possible, no, nope, unavoidable. Third, they will be calm. Good words will be calm words. Chapter 17, 27, and 28, he who restrains his words has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's considered prudent. And again, I've mentioned Dr. Alan Hull on many, many occasions. He was an elder at the church Cindy and I attended when we were in seminary. And um, I did a little internship there where they let me be part of the church for a year. So I went to the elders' meetings and Dr. Hall was the most cool customer I'd ever seen. Elders' meetings can be quite joyful. And you're talking about people's lives. And you're talking about problems. And you're talking about all kinds of things. And he would facilitate by asking people, what do you think about that, Wayne? What do you think about that, Charlie? What do you think about that, Larry? And then, of course, me being a seminary student, I don't think I was 30. I wasn't 30. He would ask me, Michael, what do you think? Having nothing to say, I would say something. And I was always very proud of what I would say. And then after they went around the room, Dr. Hall would say something very cool and very brief and very kind, and it was always exactly different than what I said. And then I thought, keep your mouth shut, dope. Next time he asks, say, Dr. Hall, I have no idea. I'll defer to you. And why was he asking me this? He was a man of understanding. He was cool. I never saw him raise his temper. I never saw him raise his voice. 
I never saw, forgive the analogy, a poker face blown. And he remains a benchmark when I read that proverb. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. How many of us in the throes of an argument with our wife, with our teenager, with a coworker, with someone, you know, in the, in the course of life, and we, we get amped up and we say things. How many of these altercations that find their way on Instagram uh, TV video streams would have stopped if someone would have just lowered their voice and walked out of the room? You don't need to be throwing chairs and pulling out guns in Waffle House, for goodness gracious. Just close your mouth. Be gentle. Walk away. You see, good words are honest, they're few, and they're calm. And finally, they're apt. A-P-T, they're apt. And this comes straight out of a proverb, 1523. A man has joy in an apt answer. And how delightful is a timely word. And in like setting, we were in a, a church where I served, and we had a counseling pastor there. He's a good, godly man. We had poured a lot of time and money into a very difficult, problematic family. And uh, one of the spouses was, he was just a disaster. And uh, they'd spent money on treatment programs and sent them away. And uh, there, were, there were a large number of elders, and they were divided over this. And the counseling pastor kind of convinced them to do it. And there were a lot of people on record, I'm against doing this. And uh, it was not a pleasant discussion it's you know it's hard to make those decisions with other people's money and I'll never forget the counseling pastor at one point toward the end of this uh, rather animated mini meeting said I wish some of you would be a little more sad than right kind of fits that proverb an apt answer I wish you were a little more sad and being right. 2511, like apples of gold, in the setting of silver is the right word or word spoken in the right circumstance. You can read it either way. The word spoken in the right circumstance. Back in the days of Christian bookstores, I remember the little you know, dust collectors they would sell, and they had these little silver platters with you know, gold apples in them, little idols you could buy. Um, <laughs> But uh, I thought, that's, that's kind of a fitting little ornament thing to, you know, put on the mantle or whatever you do with the, such things. Um, that was one of uh, Floyd Sharp's favorite proverbs as well. He would read that one, and he would read others to me, like apples of gold in the setting of silver. The right word, the word spoken in the right circumstance. Well, how do we find these words? Glad you asked. Number one, you study. And you study right out of Proverbs, chapter 15, 28. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. But the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. This encourages me on the, on the first stroke because what it tells me, you don't have to know everything right away. You can stop and say, ah, that's a complicated situation. Am I more sad or right? Now, that doesn't mean sometimes being right will eclipse being sad, and vice versa. What it means is, do you take a time out emotionally? Um, I don't know about you, but 
one of the things I've learned about my own emotions is they're completely un unrecognizable, unworthy, that they're terrible indices, and you shouldn't make decisions when you're emotional. It's amazing what 24, 48, 72 hours does to a big decision. It's amazing what a little time does to when you're all amped up about something. Now, if you're still right or you're still wrong, that's what it is, but a righteous heart says, how do I answer this? Character is another way we keep an eye out for good words, for the best words. And again, Proverbs, watch over your, 423, watch over your heart with all diligence. For from it flow springs of life. There's this tension in Scripture where the heart is deceitful and wicked and no one can know it. And there's a side of the heart which can be good. And I would illustrate that again with, are you sad or are you right? Is there a time to have compassion and have heart when normally that part of your person, I would say, no, this is, this is a waste. Um, I've seen a lot of money wasted on people. Is that a terrible statement? Well, if one person could be helped, is that the right question? Those are worth pondering. Those are worth asking. The ultimate height of Proverbs rises from the clarity that what a man says springs from what he is. It will be worth what he is worth. That's a $25 quote. The ultimate height of Proverbs rises from the clarity that what a man says springs from what a man is. It will be worth what he is worth. In this section, Derek Kidner concludes, it's only one step away from our Lord's remark in Matthew 12, 34, you brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouths speak out of that which fills the heart. When you and I speak rashly, it shows our character. When we speak kindly, it shows our compassion. When we speak quick-tempered, it shows who we really are. When we think and pause and take a moment, and I don't know how to respond to that, it shows that we're pondering how to answer. Father in heaven, your word's true, it's clear, it can be used for good or for ill. It can be calm and gentle and apt and brief. It can be impactful. It can be hurtful the way we use it. As we look at this book for all these weeks, all these months, may you impress upon us not academic knowledge, but transformation of who we are in Christ. That we represent Jesus Christ when we open our mouths, and oh, how I fail at that so often. We want to be more like Christ and less like our sinful self. And for us to do that, we need your help. We need your word, we need your spirit, and we need one another. God's word, God's spirit, and God's people to shape us into who you want us to be. Help us, we ask in Christ's risen name.